This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. When I was upside down, immersed gulping water, I had the very clear and, and present thought that, well, this is how I die. This is, this is the end. One more gulp of water, I'm going to pass out, and that's how it's going to end. Welcome to another edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in demanding situations, and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Today's guest is Russ Jeter. Russ is a general aviation pilot, ATP rated, with over 5,000 hours, all of it flying general aviation. He's owned a slew of different piston airplanes, a Citation, a couple of TBMs. He currently owns two Cessna Turbine 206s with the Saloy engine conversion. Some of our listeners will recognize Russ's name from one of the most popular videos in ASI's library, and that is the No Greater Burden video, where Russ was piloting a Cessna 206 when he inadvertently left his gear down on a water landing and the airplane flipped and tragically resulted in the loss of life of his young son. Russ is here to tell us about that story today and to emphasize some of the lessons learned from that story that happened some 11 years ago this month. Russ, welcome to the There I Was podcast. Thank you. So, Russ, your video is one of the more compelling videos that the Air Safety Institute has ever done. It's one of the most popular videos on our website for multiple of reasons, one of which is the lessons learned that came out of that were something new that we really hadn't explored much before. And so I thought we'd spend some time setting up that discussion by first telling your story and then talking about what you've done since then and the observations you made about the lessons that came out of that accident? Uh, The accident was, as you stated, a a gear-down accident on a float plane, which resulted in a violent uh, flip-over. Unfortunately, there was a couple factors that made it a deadly accident, and one of those was the windshield imploded. So we get hit with 50-mile-an-hour or so water, the other factor was the ice had just come off the lake uh, a few days before, so the water was in the low 30s. So we got hit with a tidal wave of uh, almost freezing water at 50 miles an hour or so and uh, produced almost instantaneous hypothermia, uh, disorientation, upside down, felt the plane sinking. It was dark and... Uh, very confusing, very um, disorienting, uh, just uh, hard hard to fathom what had happened, though I instantly realized what had happened, but just hard, 
hard to fathom how quickly everything went to uh, to heck. You had been out flying for the day with a couple of your friends. So there were three airplanes, and you had made a couple of stops prior to this one. And the stop prior to this one was on a paved runway. Is that is that right? Yes, we had flown around and splashed some in the morning. We stopped in Arlington, Washington, and had lunch. So we left a paved runway. I just, by happenstance, happened to be the last plane off the runway, so I was trailing my two buddies. My uh, son was sitting next to me, and we were chatting. And uh, it was a short flight to the lake we were going to land in, and uh, I just never went through my... uh, after takeoff checklist and raise the gear. Do you think, Russ, looking back on it, just having reviewed some seaplane accidents, I've just noticed, and this isn't scientific or statistic by any means, just a personal observation as I read, a lot of the landings, uh, seaplane landings with the gear extended, which almost always results in a, in a flip uh, if you're on floats, a lot of them seem to happen when the airplane is going a relatively short distance from land to sea, and earlier in the day, they were doing some seaplane landings, you know, just just sea to sea kind of thing, water to water. So you're not really in the habit of working the landing gear because you you haven't been all day long. Do you think that was a factor in this incident? Yes, uh, absolutely, because if I was flying any distance, I would have noticed the additional drag and raised my gear. I don't recall now whether I'd ever raised my flaps or not, or maybe I I had, I can't recall, but I would have obviously then put the flaps back down for the landing, and uh, so maybe I'd raised them but not raised the gear, I don't, don't recall. But I think a longer flight would have resulted in me realizing that the gear was still down. Yeah. Yeah, I think the other factor is I'd, I'd gotten a call at lunchtime and a buddy's wife and I were talking about his upcoming birthday and a present. So I was going to end the day and go shopping with this recent suggesting, suggestion of what I could get a buddy for his birthday. So I was preoccupied in that regard. My son and I were talking, so it wasn't a sterile cockpit. Uh, and then the realization later of the impactful lack of sleep from my mother's death uh, less than two weeks before. Yeah, so there's so many lessons that came out of this. One was what we just talked about, the short flight from paved to water, and a heads up for seaplane pilots that that particular scenario seems to induce more gear down landings in water. And again, I, I want to be careful. It's not scientific. I haven't gone through the data. It's just an observation I've made from reading several seaplane accidents where the gear was extended during a water landing. So just a heads up for seaplane pilots that that scenario is one worth being careful about. The other ones you mentioned, can we talk next about after the accident? I know you were trying to understand how you could make such a mistake, and you did a lot of really interesting digging on your own of the whole mental aspect of flying. You met with psychologists and people who study this field. Do you mind sharing with us what you learned in some of those discussions? Absolutely. I I appreciate this opportunity, and thank you for having me on. Afterwards, there's the, there's the million whys, there's the million what-ifs, but the, the whys, why did I not perform the landing checklist 
that I always do, even on my fixed gear airplanes, was very consuming. I mean, it would be, at the time, I was comparing it to not putting toothpaste on my toothbrush. It's like, how could you not do that? So in my search, I ran across a Navy SEAL psychologist that deals with very high-level, you know, individuals uh, of a physical nature for sure, and I'm sure they're very smart uh, guys also. And we talked about the hypothermic reactions and how they can train their Navy SEALs for a lot of different things, but they can't train them to to ignore a reflex, and hypothermia is a reflex. The other thing we talked about was the mental impact of having lost my mother, and the I was unaware of the insomnia and how much that was affecting me. And I guess uh, in the military, you know, after somebody has been in a stressful event, you know, some sort of action, you know, they have an after-action review, and they might not necessarily have those individuals re-engage in, in another uh, scenario of intensity until they've been able to decompress. So I, I compare that to my mother dying, the, um, the distress, the anxiety, the insomnia, um, all of the different things that happens um, and how that affected my sleep patterns. And I really wasn't as aware of it as I, as I should have been. It's one of the more difficult things, I think, to be aware of is the impact of fatigue on your performance. It's just so hard to assess. We all know it. We intuitively understand it. But it's so hard to gauge because so much of the time everything is going just fine. And did you uncover any techniques to help people identify when they're experiencing fatigue at the level where it can impair their performance? Not anything necessarily to understand fatigue other than just thinking about thinking about it. You know, if if mm. you don't think about something, it might it might pass underneath the radar. But yeah. if I had been thinking about the fact that at nine thirty that morning I was drinking coffee, I didn't I hadn't shaken the fog out of my head as quick as I usually do. I was emailing my mother's obituary to my older children. You know, we had a later start to go flying than, than I would have liked, but as it was, I was, you know, a little bit groggy. And I didn't associate that grogginess with the insomnia of, uh, you know, being constantly mentally bombarded with my thoughts of losing my mother and her battle with cancer. And, you know, the ending wasn't pretty. So, you know, those kind of night demons mm-hmm. affect you. And if you don't, think about those or think about the fact that you were up really late and then you're up really early and the fact that you might not have had enough sleep, then uh, it's just, you know, you're not thinking, thinking about what you need to think about. So maybe it's just being aware of the fact that if you know you've had limited sleep the night before, or in your case, it sounds like what we learned about in our military flying was chronic fatigue, where you've had a lack of sleep for days on end. And even if you have a day of good sleep in the middle of that, it really doesn't help it that much. If you go days on end and even weeks, it sounds like, since your your mom's passing and you trying to reconcile that, you've got insomnia now. And for days and even a couple weeks, you're really becoming sleep deprived and that impacts your cognitive ability. 
So maybe it's just that recognition of, hey, I'm, I really am sleep deprived. I really am in a state of fatigue. So either I don't fly or if I believe I, I am, then I slow down, use my checklist more, maybe, you know, not fly on the edge. You know, maybe that's not the day to go into a 1,200-foot mountain strip or something like that. Maybe that's a way for us to think about fatigue. Well, I think we just have to realize our limitations. When I was younger in college, there was a few times when I never made it to bed and then went to work the next day and rallied for a second night before I collapsed for you know eight or ten hours of sleep. But there's a big difference of pulling an all-nighter or driving all-night or something in your 20s and doing the same thing in your 50s or 60s. So we need to, to realize our limitations. I think you hit on an important thing there, the chronic fatigue, because it wasn't like I was inordinately um, up late the night before. I think it was just the 10 or 11 days of lack of good solid REM sleep because I was you know, constantly thinking about my mom and her passing. So I think that's the um, I think that's the factor there. And in the video, uh, you know, we'll have the video available on our website for people can link directly to it. As I mentioned, it's one of the most viewed videos in the history of the Air Safety Institute. In the video, the uh, psychologist talks about how fatigue at that level can be the equivalent of trying to operate with five alcoholic drinks in your system. Right, exactly. And th these are all things that I learned and we exposed in the video to try to help other pilots. I think the interesting thing that came out of this is after I was convinced of some of the factors that led to the mistake, that which led to the compounding of other issues like the imploding windshield and the cold water that resulted in my son's death, and I wasn't flying because I just didn't feel fit to fly, the FAA wanted me to, um, and I don't remember the numbers, but perform a, a check ride, basically, recertification check ride, or whatever you call it. And uh, I said, I'm just not up for it. And so I, I was thinking to myself, the very thing that I've come to realize that was the biggest factor in my accident, which was being impaired through lack of sleep or, or what have you, the FAA was wanting me to do this check ride when I felt impaired because of anxiety, depression, all of the different things that I was suffering after the accident and the loss of my son. And luckily, the guy assigned the check ride was understanding to the point that I was able to put that off for five or six months before I performed the check ride and felt like I was capable and safe to be back in the cockpit. Well, that's really good advice for people who are going through a recertification flight, that they should make sure that they're ready to do it, not on the FAA's timeline, but on their timeline to sort of take control of the timeliness of that. Well, I certainly didn't want to repeat the mistake twice. And so I, you know, because this was a flow plane recertification. So we'd be out on the water, landing, taking off and doing all this. And I just thought it was um, a little bizarre to be kind of pushed into doing something I wasn't ready to do. And that was, you know, something that I wish someone would have been aware of when they were asking me to do the recertification. Mm -hmm. That is this pilot safe again because of all the trauma, you know, drama he's gone through. I mean, 
I didn't know what PTSD was. I don't know if I had PTSD, but it sure felt like it, sure sounded like it, sure uh, seemed to have mm -hmm. some of the same experiences. It's good to know that the FAA was responsive to that, you know, to you saying, I'm just not ready. And they were willing to accept that and willing to reschedule, no ramifications. So, you know, just good to know and good that you just took control of that timeline. Yeah, I, I, I had to be a little bit more assertive than ideal. But mm -hmm. once I kind of explained that it just wasn't feasible, possible or safe, then they backed off and we came to a mutual agreement, and, uh, and it worked out. And my understanding of PTSD, it's pretty much a, a textbook situation for PTSD for, for the situation you were in, an immediate, sudden, unexpected, emotional, traumatic event. I, I believe somewhere in there is the definition of, of PTSD. So one of the other lessons that came out of that, uh, Russ, is you talk about the sterile cockpit and all of us get in that scenario when we fly with our children. And in this case, young Jacob was showing interest in flying, and you were occasionally letting him handle the yoke at altitude, and he, he was getting excited and wanted more and more of that. And it seemed like that was a bit of a distraction for you at this time. Well, sure. And, and to be clear, I didn't let him land. I didn't let him take off. I let him handle the yoke at altitude like you'd let any student pilot. And I think he was fascinated with the G1000 screen and the, you know, magenta line and the airplane on it and trying to maintain the airplane on our course. So, you know, it was a big boy video game in the air at a safe altitude. And there was never any thing that I would um, accept as anything but perfectly safe. I was monitoring exactly what mm -hmm. he was doing, you know, thousands of feet above the ground and and because uh, some people have confused in the video when he asked me if he could land and I said no with the fact that I was letting him land or something, which is ridiculous. But, uh, you know, some people jump to conclusions. Yeah. I was the one that made the mistake. I was the one that caused the crash. It wasn't my son. It just his natural curiosity and question, you know, may have distracted me. But that's, again, you know, my issue. When I'm listening to my XM radio, which I commonly do on cross-country flights, you know, now five or 10 miles from where I'm going, I turn the radio off. Just one less distraction to, um, to distract me. You know, it's one of those things we can, I believe that we can cherry pick certain things that come from the military or from the airlines to help us be safer pilots in general aviation. And one of them is this notion of a sterile cockpit below a certain altitude, and I believe it's 10,000 feet, I'm not certain, in the airlines. It becomes a sterile cockpit where the only communication that's allowed is business communication, you know, for the approach or flying the airplane, you know, very specific mission necessary communication. And we can learn from that, uh, that example, I think. Exactly, exactly. And I, you know, I don't necessarily do it below 10,000 feet flying GA because I'm below 10,000 feet quite right, a bit, but right. certainly within, you know, three or four miles of the airport. If I've got a chatty passenger, I just hold up my hand and say, I've got to fly right now. You know? Yeah, but a part of the, that's a good idea to make it part of the passenger briefing. And yeah, you're right, in GA, it wouldn't be below 10, but below some altitude, certainly pattern altitude or when you get in the pattern or, you know, at some point you begin to focus on, you know, only what's necessary for, for landing the airplane. And 
You mentioned, too, something that was really fascinating to me was the debilitating effects of cold water. And a lot of people do fly seaplanes. This accident happened in January. And so up around that region of the country and elsewhere, you know, they do a lot of float plane flying in the cooler weather and cool water. Do you mind sharing with us some of what you learned about the effects of cold water and hypothermia? Well, sure. And I think everybody's experienced it. When you you go outside on a Pacific Northwest day with high humidity, you know, 40 degrees with a little breeze can be bone chilling as compared to uh, in eastern Washington where it's a lot less humid. Uh, 20 degrees on a sunny day seems fine. And it's the, the conductivity of moisture. And as I understand it, and I may have this wrong, but I think I'm pretty close to it, water is 40 times more conductive than air. So that's why stepping into a cold shower shocks you, whereas stepping out into a 20-degree or 30-degree air or the water temperature of maybe 50, stepping outside into 50 degrees, you're not shocked. Stepping into a shower of you know 40 or 50-degree water, you know, it shocks you. And that's because the conductivity of the water is 40 times that of air. And so when you get that blasted in your face at 50 miles an hour, your brain, you know, instantly is responding to the hyperthermic reflex. Hmm. And that's why when I was upside down, immersed, gulping water, I had the very clear and, and present thought that, well, this is how I die. This is, this is the end. One more gulp of water, I'm going to pass out, and that's how it's going to end. And it was almost like that Ford commercial that they had years ago where the light bulb went on. Because I thought, oh my God, Kimberly losing both of us. And I had a whatever you have in your brain that you think is stimulating, a, simulating a light bulb coming on, a flash... I had that flash after I said, oh, my God, Kimberly losing the both of us. And the next thing I know is on the surface. So in talking to the Navy SEAL psychologist, I said, I just don't understand. He goes, your body was going hypothermic. Your brain was pulling in the blood to your part of your brain that's your survival part of your brain. And so the autonomic part of your brain that controls respiration and heartbeat and such was being protected with blood and maybe your cortex or prefrontal lobe or whatever that has other thoughts was being load shedded from, from blood and wasn't, wasn't able to perform your normal functions and, and thoughts. So somewhere buried in that autonomic part of the brain is my belief that along with controlling my heartbeat and my respiration, uh, the survival instinct is buried in there somewhere. Because I went black with that thought, and the next thing I know, I felt my leg scraping the window as I somehow or another inverted myself through the side window of a 206. And you're a pretty big guy. That's a pretty small opening. I don't have any idea at 225 pounds with a flannel shirt on. I did break the hinge, but I don't know how I got out that window. Hmm. And I have no recollection of opening it or anything else. Like I said... From the moment that I clearly remember thinking that, well, this is how it ends, one more gulp of water and I'm going to pass out, to, oh, my God, Kimberly losing the both of us, to my leg scraping the window. Hmm. And then I pulled the ripcord as I hit the surface, which was just part of my float plane training. 
ripcord on my life jacket that inflated me up. Yeah. And some of the people that attempted to help in the rescue attempt talked about going in the water and how really debilitating it was and then just the darkness as they went down under, you know just a few feet below the surface in the cabin of the airplane and how uh, disorienting that was and what I took away from that as a lesson learned is just in any temperature water how disorienting it's going to be when you're hanging upside down and even just a few feet below the water and how dark it'll get depending on the water but even relatively clear water well, the water was clear, and if you think about it, the two fishermen that came over were sitting in front of a heater, because it was a cold but sunny January day, but they were sitting in front of a heater, and these guys were, I'm guessing, probably in their 40s, and my fellow pilot, one of them was in his 40s, and the other guy was in his 60s, but of the four guys... They all, they all went hypothermic when they hit the water and couldn't get down six feet and open that door, which is, I think, shocking when you aren't aware of how quickly that water is conducted and how quick your body reacts. Yeah. Yeah, there's certainly that lesson from the cold water and how your ability to act is uh, so limited and what you learned from that Navy SEAL psychologist, you won't be able to do anything about reflex. I mean, reflex is reflex, and you can't train that. And then you had such a limited time to be able to act and function in water that's that cold, you know, losing control of your limbs and so forth. So it's a lesson to all of us about the realities of what's going to happen if you if you end up in water that's that cold. Yeah, I don't think you can train to ignore a reflex. I think you can train to buffer the reaction to the reflex. I think you can train to be aware of the of the reaction to the reflex so you're not surprised. I mean, everybody is aware of the gulping reflex. When you step into a, a, a cold shower, even a cool shower, you'll gulp. And I don't know where that comes from, but, you know, babies have it. You blow on, blow on a baby's face and they gulp. And so when I got hit with that cold water, I gulped. Next time you step into a cold shower, just try it. You'll find yourself gulping <laughs> without even thinking about it. And it's just one of those reflexes. Now, if you're a Navy SEAL and you've been trained to not gulp when you jump into a cold river, you probably will be able to close your mouth and resist that, or at least you're gulping with your mouth closed. And so there's other reflexes, like I said. I think you can buffer what you do, but, you, you, but you're not going to change uh, ultimately your body's reaction. Just some fascinating lessons that uh, that came out of that day. Are there any, any other lessons, Russ, that we haven't talked about? You know, self-awareness uh, we talked about. We talked about hypothermia. We talked about the checklist and trying to have a sterile cockpit, regardless of how much fun or how much you love the person you're training or teaching or, or flying with. There still has to get to that professional private pilot level instead of just the fun-loving private pilot. So I think you just have to transition into a more serious position when you're near the land or near the water and take it you know, more seriously. Not that we don't take landing serious, but I guess I'm thinking about the seriousness of a check ride because it's your check ride for life as compared to just a normal landing. I know whenever I was 
doing check rides, there was a certain heightened level of uh, attention to detail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think every landing needs to be check ride attention. Good advice. You're looking for the center stripe. You're looking for all of the right technique because it's a, a way more serious configuration than normal cruise flight. And then I kind of like what you're alluding to there, debrief yourself to perfection, even if you're just, you know, thinking about it a little bit, you know, after you taxi in, hmm, I missed the center line there by a couple feet. I wonder, you know, wonder why, why'd I drift left there? Well, the last, the last few years I've, I've done some flying with a, a longtime friend that has over 20,000 hours and he flies triple sevens for a, a major airline. And so uh, we'd come into a challenging situation and crosswind or whatever it was. And, and I said, well, how'd you like that? And he said, well, you were off the center line four feet. <laughs> so <laughs> here I was expecting kudos for a short approach into a short runway with a gusting crosswind or something. And he goes, yeah, but you were four feet off center line. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I just need to, I think people need to raise their expectations on every landing and it, and try to give it check ride attention, you know, give it the attention you'd give it if you were doing a check ride. Yeah. Well, Russ, thank you for being willing to share some of the lessons learned that came out of your tragic day in January. I also just want to thank you for being a supporter of the foundation for our listeners. Russ responded to his tragedy by reaching out to the Air Safety Institute, wanting to make this message get out to more pilots so they wouldn't experience what Russ experienced. And that takes a, um, a response from a special kind of person, Russ. So thank you for what you do for GA safety. Well, I feel like I, I owe it to my fellow pilots. I, I love to fly. Aviation's in my blood. And I just feel like a, I have a responsibility to my, to my fellow pilots. I want to thank Russ Jeter for coming on and telling the lessons learned that came out of that tragic day for him and his family. The video called No Greater Burden is on ASI's YouTube channel, and I encourage our listeners to go watch that compelling video. Alongside our producer, David O'Leary, I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Until next time, fly safe. Hey, listeners, if you like these podcasts and you'd like to help us continue providing them, please consider a donation to help our efforts. Go to aopafoundation.org slash donate. That's aopafoundation, all one word, dot org slash donate. And thanks for your support. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening.